Hey guys, thank you for joining us today on Talking Scripture. Hopefully you've heard that we are now on podcasting apps. You can find Talking Scripture on Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Can you take a minute and just rate and subscribe to our podcast? That will go a long way in helping people find us. Welcome to Talking Scriptures with Mike and Bryce. I'm Mike. I'm Bryce. And we're going to go. We're going to do Hebrews today really quick. It's going to be a, well, I say really quick. I don't know what's going to happen. It's going to be interesting. Um, I want to start by talking about uh, authorship, if that's okay, and answer a couple questions about well, who wrote it, what the point is, uh, what the arguments are. And so you've heard me say this before, but uh, Christianity comes out of Judaism. You know, the early Christians were Jewish, and this text to the Hebrews is written, you guessed it, to the Hebrews. So it's a group of people that believe and understand the, the Bible and understand the arguments of, when I say the Bible, I mean the Old Testament, because really there is no Bible at this time. And we'll do another podcast where we talk about how did we get the Bible, and how did we decide what was canon, and who decided, and those arguments. But for today, we're just going to talk about this being a letter, but then a lot of times it's called letter, but it's really like a, it's an argument. It's a treatise. It's, it's a document, and we don't know who wrote it. It's anonymous. It doesn't say, I have Paul wrote this, but it basically says, here's why Christianity matters. And so the Jews were the recipients of it. And at essence, I think if I had to come up with a question, I think that would illustrate what this book is saying. The question is, how do you convince someone specifically these people, these Jewish Christians, that they're doing the right thing and trusting Jesus? How do you convince them? And so, and what I love about Bryce is Bryce can take that question and say, okay, here's how you apply it to a 2019 audience, whether you're talking to your family or college students. I mean, he's a master and he's going to do that. But first, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, first, and tech, first and second temple religion amongst the Israelites and why this is important. And I'm going to talk about uh, authorship possibilities and we'll, we'll just see what happens. So, I'll just throw one yeah. thing in here, Mike. Is just You'll notice the placing of the book of Hebrews. Um, when the King James writers put the Bible together, they took all of Paul's epistles, and they didn't put them in chronological order or sequential order or even alphabetical order. Any one of them would have been great. Right. They chose length. So they put them in order by length. So the longest of Paul's epistles is Romans, and so that comes first. And then the second longest is Corinthians. And so you'll notice that, you know, we get Hebrews at the very end because they didn't know who wrote Hebrews. They weren't sure if it was Paul. And so you'll notice this huge chunk of Paul's epistles going from longest to shortest, followed by Hebrews. And so even back in the days of King James writers putting the Bible together, they weren't sure who wrote Hebrews. We often attribute it to Paul, but Mike's going to talk about some other possibilities. Yeah, we, did, we, we just don't know. Uh, first, I do want to talk a little bit about First and Second Temple. So when I say First and Second Temple, and we'll do more uh, of this, this isn't the only time we'll talk about it. First Temple Israelite religion was basically from the construction of the temple until the destruction of the First Temple in 586. And that's a really important shift in the religion of Israel. And Nephi stands at the pinnacle of this. Nephi, he has one hand in First Temple Israelite religion, but his other hand sees what, and I'm going to call it the Jewish apostasy. He sees how the, there's going to be changes in the religion. And so Nephi and, and his father are really at this really important critical time in history. And so, and there's a lot to unpack, but just know that the Old Testament has been edited. It's been changed. 
And so I'm going to talk a lot about First Temple religion, and there's a lot of books are out there, a lot of them mostly by non-LDS scholars. But if you're, you're a listener and you're like, give me a book, give me a book that really will introduce it uh, to an LDS audience, I would say a, a book out there is by LeGrand Baker. And it's called Who Shall Ascend to the Hill of the Lord? And it's about 700 pages. And you can buy it at Deseret Book. And it's so good. And the, and the real, the money in that book isn't even the text. It's in the footnotes. And so if you really want to go down, well, what was the first temple Israelite religion? You've got to read the sources. And he gives you these sources. And the beautiful thing is he also gives you the book for free. If you're one of those people that's like, I'll read it on a PDF for free. Um, and we'll put that link out there. Uh, he's offered it up. And uh, he's no longer here. The LeGrand Baker's on the other side of, this, of the veil, but he has just done a great work on this. And like I said, a lot of non-LDS scholars out there um, have written about this. Sigmund Moewinkel's one, Margaret Barker's another. There's a bunch of them. So back to First Temple Judaism. It was this ascension. It was this notion that uh, you would go to the temple at the at the new year and to them the new year was like when school starts if you think about it in if you're an american we kind of have two new years we have september and we have january well there really were two calendars and part of this came out of the jewish apostasy um, and so in first temple israel it was the fall and you would have this big feast and it was eight days feast of tabernacles and you would go to the temple and the king and his wife would represent the people and there'd be a drama and there'd be music and dancing, and there'd be, um, in this drama, a, a symbolic combat with the ocean or combat with chaos, combat with the serpent. And the king who represented God would win. He'd be victorious, and he would ascend through covenants into God's presence. And according to a lot of sources, the people there could see the king and queen kneel at an altar and make covenants before God. And then the king and the queen would turn to the audience and say, as we have made covenants, so will you. And he would invite the audience to stand and make covenants with God. And there's books about this. One is called Sacral Kingship. And the king, who is a type of Melchizedek, which we'll talk about later, would, he and his wife would be brought into God's presence. They'd sit on thrones and they'd be anointed kings and queens. And as long as they follow God, the land would produce. The land would be productive. There'd be fertility. There, God's presence would be with them. And this is all First Temple Judaism. Sure sounds familiar, Mike, to Latter-day yeah, Saints. Yeah, if you're a Latter-day Saint, this shouldn't be like so strange, right? Um, but then with the Jewish apostasy, or as we'll call Second Temple religion, the texts were edited, and Melchizedek was ripped out of the Bible. And the idea that you could ascend into God's presence most of that stuff's taken out. Now, there's remnants. Exodus 24 has Moses and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel coming into God's presence. But there's, just, there's a lot of stuff taken out. So Deuteronomy represents these notions that you can't see God and that God doesn't have a body and that there is no ascension. And so, and like I said, we'll do more of this. But Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 are really big. And they're big to the author of Hebrews. And they're big to First Temple Judaism. And here's why. Those two Psalms, and go read them, basically say that the king will be authorized to represent God and that he is called a son of God. And when the king and his wife made this covenant, they would say to the audience, so shall you 
be sons and daughters of God. As we have been made covenants with God, as you keep the covenants that we've made, we vicariously make them, but you make them too, you are all brought back into God's presence. Now, there's some really good scholarship out there that show that King Benjamin's whole speech is this event. And there's one guy that wrote, uh, he found 26 parallels between First Temple Judaism and the Feast of Tabernacles and King Benjamin's speech. And so I'm pretty convinced, I mean, if I had a bet that this is happening. And so the author of Hebrews is going to play on these motifs, these ideas that the Bible's changed. And the author of Hebrews is saying to his audience, no, there's a better way. Christianity is First Temple Judaism. Christ is that high priest and you're the person making the covenant and Christ is going to pull you into holiness and you can ascend and become uh, B'nai Elohim, sons and daughters of God. So that's that's like a short six-minute introdu introduction to First Temple Judaism. But Second Temple Judaism, just in a nutshell, is pretty much what we're reading in the Bible, which is, you know, you can't see God. It, the temple becomes all about blood sacrifice, and only the high priest can go in there. And we're, we can't go in, and certainly no Gentiles. We don't want them in. And, and that's Second Temple Judaism. And there's some good stuff in Second Temple Judaism, don't get me wrong. But the author of Hebrews knows both traditions. And if you're sitting in first century Christianity and you know this, it's like you and the author kind of looking at each other like, you get it, don't you? And I think in Latter-day Saint uh, culture, there's, there's Latter-day Saint stuff that we talk about in church, and then there's temple theology. And there's some of this in Hebrews. Anyway, so that's a little bit of that. Okay, now... Let me pause yeah, one yeah. second, Mike. Let me just take the audience through a, a, an interesting little chain. Let me show you all the betters. All of the betters in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 1, verse 8. Made so much better than the angels. Obtained a more excellent name. If you jump to chapter 3. For this man was counted worthy of a more, more glory than Moses. Inasmuch as he who builded the house hath more honor than the house. It's that same theme yeah. over and over and over again. Chapter 7, verse 7. Uh, without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. Verse 19 talks about a better hope. Uh, verse 22, a better testament. So much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. Chapter 8, verse 6, more excellent ministry. Mediator of a better covenant <laughs> with better promises. Chapter... 9 verse 23 better sacrifices jesus offers better sacrifices um, and then chapter 10 verse 34 ye have in heaven a better and a more enduring substance it's a thread that weaves throughout and what's the point would you say bryce what's his point um, to point the Paul, I think the point that he's making back then is Jesus is better. What Jesus is offering you is better than what you're holding on to. That's keeping you from from Him. Let go of the lesser and accept the yeah, better. Now yeah. that application goes universal. Yeah. In so many ways, we hold on to the lesser, and we we give up the better. C.S. Lewis wrote an entire book called The Great Divorce about a group of ghosts from hell that go on vacation to heaven. And every one of them are invited to stay if they let go of the one thing that's holding them, that's, that they're holding on to that's keeping them in hell. 
And so the whole book is angels come down and converse with these, these devils and try to encourage them to stay. But in the process of their conversation, it becomes very clear what they're holding on to that's keeping them in hell rather than let go of it and come into heaven. And that's, that's what the author of Hebrews is pleading. In a very generic sense, he's saying, why are you holding on to the lesser and not running after the better? Because these people, they're literally in this, and, and this is important. I think this lends to authorship, and this also, more importantly, leads to timing. These people that are being written to this letter, these, these Jewish Christians, are doubting now. They're standing here saying, am I doing the right thing? Is following Jesus the answer? Now, I'm going to make an argument, and there's scholarship on both sides of this debate, but I'm going to pick a side. I'm going to say that this book was written, or this, this document was written, before the destruction of the temple. And the reason why I think this is a valid argument, I'm going to take a side on this, and I think it's happening before 70 AD. And the reason why, a couple of reasons. First, uh, there was a, a bishop in Rome in the, in the 90s, and his name's Clement. And he's writing about the book of Hebrews. He's sourcing it. He's quoting it. And so historians say, okay, it's written before 90. This is one of the earlier documents. But I think it was written before uh, the temple was destroyed because the author is arguing to these Jews why it's important to stay with Jesus. And I think, I think this was written before the temple was destroyed because if the temple was destroyed, if this document was written after 70 AD, it's a really easy argument to say to these Jews, look, your uh, religion, your, your theology is falling apart. Your temple's been destroyed. You've been scattered. After 70 AD, and this is really harsh. I mean, if you read history, this is really brutal. But the Jews were killed and scattered, and they weren't allowed to rebuild their temple, and horrible things happened to them. What Jewish Christian at that point would then be tempted to go back to Judaism. Uh, it was at this point in 70 AD when the Jews and the Christians really split and the Jews stepped aside and said, I'm not Jewish. The, the Christians stepped aside, excuse me, and said, I'm not Jewish. Uh, one author that's really written a lot about this is an author by the name of Raymond Brown. And Raymond Brown writes a lot about how these two communities were very close together until the split at the temple at 70 AD and the Jews and the Christians parted ways. And so from a logical standpoint, a couple ideas, Hebrews never mentions the destruction of the temple. And I think if you're making an argument to Jews that it's valid to follow Jesus, that is a powerful argument to say, your temple has been destroyed. Think about this. Never mentioned. And secondly, I think it's more of a temptation to go back to Judaism if the temple stands and the Jews are cohesive and they're a powerful group in Jerusalem. And so because of the way that the text reads in that fashion, my contention is that that's the time period, which then lends itself to more likely have been have written by Paul or ha has have been written by Paul. I'm having a hard time saying that. But I think that's what I would say is uh, it gives more credence to Pauline authorship. So that being considered, I'm just going to throw a couple names at you. A lot of Christians debated who wrote this. And when the, when the New Testament was canonized, uh, they couldn't really decide. And the question was, do we keep it? Uh, a text being written by an apostle really made it more likely to be canonized. And so it was important for these people to have that be written by Paul. But like I said, they weren't sure. So some other options other than Paul. Um, he had a, 
there was a man named Apollos that's referenced in Acts 18. And Martin Luther, the reformer, assumed that perhaps Apollos was an author. Others thought maybe Barnabas, Paul's companion. Others thought that maybe Philo, who was a, at Alexander and had a lot of influence in Christianity, that it, he may have influenced it or even have written it. And so there were a lot of people that were put as options for the, for the, to be the author of the text. Even Luke, uh, some thought that maybe he wrote it. Uh, John Calvin, the reformer, thought maybe Luke wrote Hebrews. So I guess my point is, we don't know. Um, I think for the sake of this podcast, we're going to, you know, we're, we'll probably say Paul. And sometimes I'll say the author of Hebrews. But I think for, for sake of argument and in tradition, you know, we'll say Paul. But uh, just know that, that it's not settled. But I think, you know, that's important. We're going to talk about a lot of things because Hebrews talks about a lot of things. But uh, I think we've covered timing. We've covered authorship and given a short intro as to like the overall meaning of the text. So now, Bryce, why don't we get into the weeds and talk a little bit more about what's happening? Great. Where do you want to start, Mike? Wow. Where do we start? <laughs> Let me just, I'll, maybe I'll just start. I gave you a list of betters, betters, and betters. Yeah. And so Paul is saying yeah. that Jesus is a better way. Jesus is a better way. So let me take you back through Hebrews and show me, show you another list. So you can find that word better, better, better. But that can be a dangerous thing because that can lead to pride and arrogance and thinking that. So the second list is a whole list of let us. So for example, chapter 4, verse 1, let us therefore fear. Verse 11, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. Verse 14, let us hold fast our profession. Verse 16, let us, therefore, come boldly unto the throne of grace. So, yes, this is better, therefore, let's be better. It's one thing to say, well, we have a better church, neener, neener, neener. Right. And it's another thing to say, Jesus is a better way, therefore, we need to act better. We need to be better. Chapter 6, let us go on unto perfection. That was verse 1. Verse 9, we are persuaded better things of you. Implied, therefore, we need to act better. So once again, this is an implication of how do we, okay, so we have this, but now what? Yeah. It's not just to have it or That's to right. believe it. What are we doing? That's right. It's not to throw it in other people's faces as much as it's to be better, yeah. to live according to that expectation. Yeah. Chapter 10, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart. Verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith. Verse 24, let us consider one to another. Um, and it just goes on and on and on all throughout this. Go to chapter 12, verse 1. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth easily, so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. So it's an invitation to a life. Yep. Um, by the way, that really is at the center of the word faith. And we'll, we might do a podcast on this, or we might even invite uh, you know, people to come talk about this. I, we have some friends out there that spend their time in, in Greek. But the word is pistis, which is faith. And that really is Hebrews 11. Pistis, or faith, is this notion of trust, even in the swirl of the ocean of chaos. Uh, the symbol, if there was one symbol for pistis, it would be the handshake. The handshake of, do I trust this person? And Joseph Smith just restores this. Now when I say he restores it, God restores it. But the idea of what is faith, early in Christianity, faith or pistis was this notion of deep and abiding trust that later 
and then on through the enlightenment became a mental assertion. And so today, if someone says, I have faith in Jesus, most people in the modern age say, well, I believe in Jesus. I believe that he is what he says he is. And that's kind of the end of the road. But the entire 11th chapter of Hebrews is first century Christianity, Greek pistis. And, and, if you've, and that's why I invite you, to, you, the listeners, to read Hebrews 11. The whole thing is all about, man, horrible things are happening and God says, do you trust me? And every time they pass, every time. Isn't it interesting, Mike, that carved into the walls of the Salt Lake Temple are two hands clasping each other? That's, that's faith. Yeah, that's powerful. So should we, let's do faith. If you don't mind, Mike, I'd love to just talk a little bit about faith since Paul brings it up, or the author to the Hebrews brings it up. <laughs> yeah, I'm there, there you Paul. go. There you go. Um, if this whole book seems to be saying, don't go back or don't hold on to something lesser when something better is available, that's kind of the whole theme of this book, and is, is find the better way. Let go of the lesser and and jump to the 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 better there's just five verses in this book that just mean the world to me i'm i'm going to start by taking everyone back to peter walking on the water um they got on the boat about even time which would be about 6 p.m and jesus walks to them on the fourth watch it's just somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m so they've been rowing on this sea for at least nine hours Sea of Galilee, middle of the night, dark, nine hours of rowing. Can you imagine their emotional state? Can you imagine their physical state? They You're are exhausted. exhausted. <laughs> they are stressed. They have, I mean, if you've ever been on a lake, in the, you know, especially in the darkness when a storm hits, it is terrifying. Are we going to make it even? Yeah, which is a symbol of life. You know, life beats upon us. And we're just terrified. And then here comes Jesus walking to them and says three of the most wonderful words, the same words he yells out to every one of us. Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. In the darkness of our lives, as the storms are beating against us, Jesus says, I'm here. It is I. Don't be afraid. Be of good cheer. That's that hand. Do you trust me? So Peter yells out what I think all of us would love to yell out. Lord, can I get out of this darn boat? Can I, for one brief moment, can I have a brief moment of, this, of the waves not beating against me? Could I walk by thy side for one brief moment? Lord, can I get out of the boat and be with you? And Jesus says one word to Peter, to all of us, to every one of us. He simply says, come, get out of the boat. With that invitation, Peter has a tremendous amount of confidence in the Savior. Jesus has invited me out of the boat and onto the water above the storm. So how does he get out of the boat? If he reaches his foot over and tests the water, any chance the water's solid? <laughs> no way. Peter jumps, fully confident that when his foot hits that water, it will be solid. That confidence was born of the invitation that the Savior gave him. Trust Jesus and jump out of the boat. And every one of us have those moments where we trust Jesus and we jump out of the boat. Unfortunately, 
the scripture says that Peter saw the wind boisterous and he feared and then he sank. When we take our eyes off the Savior and fear, when we notice the storm, when we focus on the storm and the challenges and the darkness, we let go of our confidence. We let go of that previous confidence. And when fear fills our hearts, like Peter, we sink. Now, fortunately, Peter cried out and said, Lord, save me. And Jesus ran to him and caught him and pulled him up out of the water and said, Wherefore didst thou doubt? And the question is, why did you let fear cause you to let go of your confidence? One of my favorite definitions of, of faith comes from C.S. Lewis, where he says, Faith is the art of holding on to what your reason once accepted in spite of your moods or your fears. That's powerful. Faith is the art of holding on to what you know is true, what your confidence once said, I know. At Jesus' invitation, I know I can jump out of this boat and land on solid ground. Faith is the art of holding on to what you once knew was true in spite of your emotions and your fears. In essence, I think what you're, I think what you're doing is you're transitioning to, okay, that's who Paul's writing to. Now, how is Paul writing to me? Yeah. In other words, in 2019, what does Hebrews mean to a modern reader? It's, Keep going with this. Don't let go of your confidence. Yeah. And so, like for example, Mike and I teach college students, and it's so confident. You know, a college student or a high school student coming out of high school would say, "Of course, my spouse is out there." My patriarchal blessing mentions my spouse, talks about marriage and children. Of course my spouse is out there, and I'm going to find him or her soon. They're all starry-eyed. full <laughs> of confidence. I'm going to find my spouse. Of course I didn't expect to find him in high school, but now I expect to find them. And their confidence is sky high. <laughs> At first. And then either they go on some bad dates or they don't get asked out on dates and years pass and pretty soon they turn 25 or 26 or whatever the age is and they focus on the storm. And their confidence in Christ is diminishing and the storm is causing them to fear and then they sink. And odds are if they sink, they're going to marry the wrong person because they're not going to believe the right person's out there. And I think Jesus would pull them up out of the storm and say, Wherefore didst thou doubt? Your patriarchal blessing hasn't changed. Where did you, why did you let go of your confidence? What happened? So some of my favorite verses in all of Scripture happen to be in Hebrews. Chapter 10, where the author writes, Cast, this is verse 35, Hebrews 10, 35. Mark through this 30, verse, yeah. Through 39. Cast not away, therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For we have need of patience. Hold on in the storm. Hold on in the darkness. For we have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, and I think a synonym of drawing back would be letting go. Yeah, don't let go. Don't Letting go of your confidence. 
But if any man draw back, my soul hath no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back. So good. We are of them that believe to the saving of the soul. How applicable is this today with all the voices that are tearing down belief in God? We are swimming in chaos in this opposition. We are in the boat. And I think sometimes it's important, uh, listeners, all of us, our children, those we teach, to realize we don't have the same trials that they had back then. And yet, this is the human condition, isn't it, Bryce? It is. And, and that's what I love about how you teach, how you say, okay, that's them there then. But what you just did is shift it to, now this has relevance to me. Because every single one of us have moments in our lives where our the invitation of Jesus gives us confidence to jump out of the boat. Yeah. And then we see the storm. We just see the storm and then we sink. What's your focus? So are you letting your eyes off the Savior? Hold on to your confidence. You know, we, we have a tendency to get a revelation. I know people who have prayed for a forgiveness of sins and they get a revelation that says your sins are forgiven. And then the next day they begin to doubt the revelation. Yeah. Was that really him? Did he really say that? Am I really forgiven? And they let go of the confidence they felt when the prompting first came. Yeah. And Paul says, don't, cast not away, therefore your confidence. Hold on. I love that, Mike. Can I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that and I'm going to go back to the beginning of 10. So we're still in 10 and I'm going to do a little bit of Moses versus what Paul's saying here. Verse 1, for the law having a shadow of good things to come. And later, Paul's going to say that Jesus is a high priest of good things to come. And I encourage my listeners, if you haven't heard the talk by Elder Holland, just, high, what's the name of the talk? High priest of good things to come. you got to do that talk. So please listen to that talk or read that talk. Paul says, and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they have offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. Um, for then would they not have ceased to be offered, because the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins? I'm going to read this. Uh, once again, I think it's okay. We haven't really talked about this, but I think it's okay to read other translations. And um, I want to just express, uh, it's been a frustration of mine, and it's also a weakness. And so I'm just going to say this before I get more into to those verses. So Bryce, if I lose track because I go down dirt roads a lot, just keep me on track and pull me back. But I'm just going to say this. Uh, for years, I've really struggled with Paul. And you, I've talked to you a lot about this, Bryce. He doesn't read like Nephi. He doesn't read like the Gospels. The Gospels are carefully crafted, and, and they teach this beautiful uh, imagery and use powerful stories. And then you read Paul, and sometimes Paul's clunky because we don't know always what he's talking about as far as what he's addressing. But really, for me personally, a big problem I've had is just the King James translation. Sometimes Paul is just tough. And so I, I want to just invite the listeners out there, and I want to make this statement that it's okay to read other translations. And so before I read this other translation, do you want to say anything about other translations of the Bible, Bryce? I remind everyone of the 13th article of faith. If there's anything virtuous, lovely, or good report or praiseworthy, we seek after these things. Anything that gives us insight and understanding now, the official version of the church is the King James Version of the Bible, and that's great. And so we focus on the King James Version. But I think anything that brings insight and gains helps you under, gain understanding, and that's what some of these other translations of the Bible can do for you, is they'll render it a little bit differently that might click. 
that might say, oh my goodness, now I see what Paul was trying to say. So strongly encourage anything virtuous, praiseworthy, or good report, including other editions of the Bible. What we ought not to do is start arguing, what did he really say? Right. Because that's a fruitless argument. We ought not to, 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 which is the best translation, but we always ought to say, here's another translation that might benefit our understanding. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm going to throw a couple translations out there that I really like. I really like, and I mentioned this before, Thomas Wayman's translation, the New Testament, a translation for Latter-day Saints. It's really good. Another one I really like is the New Oxford Annotated Bible, and it's the Revised Standard Version. I think that is a really good rendition. So I'm going to read, this is from Wayman, and it's 10, chapter 10, verse 1. For the law is a type of good things to come, but it is not the reality itself. Think about that. There is nothing that really can teach Jesus. Every metaphor, every allegory, every word that we're using here, our language, we are all limited. Everything is a limitation. Uh, th there is no replacement for Jesus. But, you know, these are types. These are shadows. The law is not capable of perfecting those. This is verse 2. Those who come to worship by the same sacrifices offered continually every year. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have had a consciousness of sin. But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year for the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. So here's, here's my thinking. And this is one of the things I think Paul is saying is that the sacrifices of the old law, and he's speaking to these Jews, they were a type, they pointed to Christ, but they don't save you. It's Christ that saves you. And then, I, I'm going to say this, I think he is really lending himself and making an argument to first temple religion, that it's Jesus that takes us home, and he takes us home through, and it's a powerful image, he's going to talk about the veil, and what the veil means. And I, to me, this is really powerful, and if you're a listener out there, and you're familiar with some veil theology, uh, and what the veil represents, this should have deep meaning for you. And so let's skip down to verse 19. Uh, he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, because we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, he initiated for us through the veil. That is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart and with full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled from a wicked conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. There's so much in there. But I just want to leave with this notion. Um, like I said, we could spend a lot of time just on those verses. But I want to leave with this notion that Paul is basically saying, in one way, that the veil is a type of Christ. That the veil represents him. And so we get to the Father through the sufferings of Jesus. But not just through his sufferings. Literally, through him. He is the way. The word is chodos. And it means way, but it also means journey. And so every time you see a movie or a story about a journey that the hero goes on, I can't, I can't unsee it. The journey is Christ. It's following him. The early Christians were called the followers of the way. And that's why in John 14, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I would add through, but through Jesus which lends to a lot of temple theology. But there's this one idea that Heavenly Father, when we come to him, 
he sees Jesus. In other words, Jesus says, Bryce, I know you've messed up in your life, but let me put my robe on you. And when the Father sees you, he will see me and you will embrace him. And by the way, in First Temple Judaism, in First Temple Israelite religion, the climax of everything was the anointing, the enthronement, and the sacred embrace, coming unto God. And so this to me is sowed. This is a temple text, and we're coming back into God's presence. And it's also, it, it's kind of emotional that, that it's only through Jesus and only through all the things that the veil represents. Anyway, there's a lot more, but I'm just going to stop there. That's beautiful, Mike. Let's do Melchizedek. Okay, we got to do Melchizedek. Okay, so we got to, I'm going to start. Okay, so seven, chapter seven. Okay, first of all, um, I'm Old Testament nerd, so here we go. Uh, Genesis, we got the, you know, the slaughter of the kings passage. And Abraham comes back and he's been victorious and he's rescued his buddies. And he rescues Lot and he sees Melchizedek. And you can go read it in Old, and I think it's Genesis 14. And we get this little reference about how he kneels to him and and pays tithes, and then there's a sacrament experience, and then Melchizedek, poof, he's gone. It's like, if the Old Testament was a play, Melchizedek, which is such a big deal, he walks across the stage and he waves, and then he's gone. And yet in the credits, he would come very high because he's a main character. He's a big deal. And so I'm going to say this a bunch of times. The Old Testament's been edited, peeps. Uh, he is such a big deal in First Temple Israelite religion, but if you're an editor and you don't believe God can be seen and you don't believe that we're going to come back into his presence and all this ascension stuff, Melchizedek's got to go. So he's out. But if you read First Temple literature that's out of the Bible, this is called extra-biblical literature, he is a big deal. So just know that the Bible's been edited. But once again, Paul, or the author of Hebrews, uh, knows this stuff, and so he's talking about him. So chapter 7. Uh, we know that he's the king of Salem in verse 1. He's a king of righteousness, king of peace. By the way, king, Melech, and then Zedek, which is righteousness. If you put it together, you get Melech Zedek, which is Melchizedek, king of righteousness. And so we're punning. We're playing with these, with these ideas. Um, and then he says this. He says, he was a priest continually. Now, that's verse 3. Now, I'm going to read a few verses. I'm going to read it out of the King James. And my, my point is, to really understand it, you got to understand how Greeks think. So here it is, and it's a little bit, how shall I say this? It, it, it could be misunderstood, so I hope that I'm not misunderstood when I say this. So here's this notion. The notion is this, that when a man lives, that his grandchildren also live in the seed of that man. And so if a man does something, his seed, they're doing it too. These People that haven't even been born are doing it because they're within his loins. I know this is kind of a crass way to say it, but welcome to the first century you know, Greek ideas. And so because of that, the argument that Paul's going to make is to the Jews, hey, before there was a law, before Moses, there was something greater, and that was Melchizedek, and Christianity has access to that power. This idea of Melchizedek having some kind of power or priesthood that is supersedes the Levitical way that we've been doing things for 500 years or 600 years. So here we go. We're going to read it, but just work with me here that you Jews, according to Paul, are in the loins of Abraham. So here we go. We're going to read it. Verse 5. Uh, well, we'll do 4. Now consider how great this man was unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoil. So we're talking about Melchizedek through Abraham here. Verse 5. Verily, they that are of the sons of Levi, these Levitical priests, 
who receive the office of the priesthood have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, out of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. So there is the first reference. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. So Melchizedek, who is not Levi, received tithing from Abraham. What Paul's trying to do, he's laying down his argument that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Abraham's paying tithes to him, and it's this you know bigger, better, best. It's the theme throughout Hebrews. Verse 6. I think, did I read 6? I can't remember. Yes. Okay, 7. Seven. Thank you, Bryce. So I don't know. There we go. Senior moment. Okay, seven. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them, of whom it is witness that he liveth. And as I may so say, Levi also, who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. So what he's saying is the, the, the Levites are subservient to Melchizedek because they were in Abraham's seed. They were in his loins when Abraham did this. Does this make sense? This is so weird to a modern reader, but this is what Paul's saying. So verse 10, For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and was not called after the order of Aaron? Boom! And Paul drops his mic right Boom. there. Boom. And that's his argument. And it's kind of clunky, and a modern reader just misses it. But it's so powerful. So essentially, in a nutshell, in 20 seconds, what Paul's saying is the Melchizedek power trumps all this Levitical stuff. How's that? Yep. Is that good? Beautiful. <laughs> kind of clunky. That's great. Okay. So what do we do with Melchizedek? Well, my comment about Melchizedek is this. You remember in section 107 that the name of the priesthood is changed. The real name of the priesthood carries the title of Christ in it. And to avoid the two rep and to avoid the too frequent repetition of his name, we need to change it. But what do we change it to? The Savior says in 107, let's change it to Melchizedek because he was such a great high priest. He's the model. So let's suppose you just received the Melchizedek priesthood, Mike, and you want to read about the model. Good luck. Where would you have to go to read about Melchizedek? Well, you've got Genesis and you've got Alma 13. You've got little teeny pieces here and there. Yeah. Even, even Hebrews chapter 7 has a Joseph Smith translation change you've got to track down. Yep. In other words, Melchizedek has been removed from the scriptures and has to be pieced together. Isn't that symbolic of the doctrine of the priesthood? If you're going to come to understand the purposes and the doctrine of the Melchizedek priesthood, you've got to read all the standard works. You've got to piece them together to have a pretty good vision. Because Melchizedek is everywhere and yet nowhere. He's been taken out. And you've got to piece him together. And when you do, there's enough pieces in the scriptures to paint a pretty accurate picture of what Melchizedek was. And who he was. But it's only when you piece all the scriptures together, which I think is so symbolic of the Melchizedek priesthood. And I know that's not really Hebrews, but I just think it comes up in Hebrews to just simply say, look, find Melchizedek. Those of you who hold the Melchizedek priesthood and want to officiate like the model, find Melchizedek. And that's going to be a journey. And the symbolism of that journey is find, to, and find the priesthood. Come to understand the doctrine of the priesthood. And that's sure. true for men, women, those who hold offices and those who don't. Come to understand the doctrine of the priesthood. And it's going to be a journey. 
and it's going to be a little piece here and a little piece there. I love that symbolism, yeah. Mike. Yeah. Um, I, I want to make a plug for a video. We'll put the link out. But there's a fellow that's a, a great Latter-day Saint that's made some amazing videos. And this one is about Jesus as the great high priest. And it's just about the clothes that the high priest wore and how it represents Jesus. And I don't want to give it away. You'll watch the video. But if you remember, the priest wore the 12 stones on his heart. And each stone had the names of the tribes. And then he had all 12 tribes on two onyx stones on his shoulders. And I love this notion that if the high priest represents Jesus... I'm written on his heart, but he also carries me on his shoulders. And so the video is just amazing. So we'll put the link out there. But what a great image of, of Jesus as the great high priest. And once again, what does the high priest do? Even, even though the Bible's been edited, the high priest does enter into the holiest of all. But Paul's contention is that not only does Jesus enter the holiest of all, but he invites you to. And I think that... That is beautiful. That's the book of Hebrews, too. Okay. Are we good? We're good. We're good. We're good. We just encourage everyone listening to let go of lesser things. Okay. Amen. We'll see you next time. <laughs>